Welcome everybody to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, my monthly or so interview series where I have the privilege of sitting down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. And today, uh, we're not going on the dev side, but rather on the media side with one of the more interesting characters in the world of games media, somebody whose name you probably know, uh, someone whose name that certain game publishers probably fear, Jason Schreier, welcome. Hello, it's good to be here, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, I don't know about the best or brightest, but I'm <laughs> certainly here. Hello. <laughs> well, it's uh, you. You've written a couple of books now. That's why you're you're not here for your health, even though it's nice to talk to you. Or it's you're out on the book promotion. Let's we'll talk about the book. It's press <laughs> this reset. This is actually my first. This is the first stop of my book tour. Oh, good. So All right. So you're not first, exhausted and, and tired of telling the same anecdotes yet. So I'll get. I'll get the full like 100% version <laughs> in yes, this interview, which I'm you grateful no, for. You, you should expect nothing less. If I'm coming <laughs> on IGN, if I'm talking to Ryan McCaffrey, you are not. You are getting 100% unfiltered. You might say. I appreciate the the sly plug. Well, uh, let's let's do an obvious plug for you. You are here to promote your new book, your second book. Uh, it's called Press Reset: Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. And once again, you have said about uh, just digging deep into a number of game studios and their, their just behind the scenes stories, which I, I've read the whole book uh, before this interview. And it's, you know, there's some of the stories I was at least familiar with on some level, but you go way, way deeper into it. And uh, of course, you've, you're, today you're a reporter at Bloomberg. You arguably really made your name at Kotaku before coming over to Bloomberg, what, a year or two ago now. Uh, and this is what you do. You uh, you are really the preeminent, proper investigative reporter in the in the games media business. Not certainly not the only one, but but uh, you've certainly got a number of uh, of great stories on your resume. For me, I mean, I always like doing the superhero origin story on this show. I'd love to know like how people got to where they are. Um, particularly since, you know, you and I are, are colleagues and it's like, it's, uh, you know, I'm interviewing a colleague here. So I, I got to start. What was your first console or PC? Where did your video game life start? <laughs> okay. So my first console was the NES, um, which my parents actually had before I was born. So I was born in 1987 and they had it. Um, and, or maybe they got it like before I was old, like when I was a baby. Um, because it came out, I think, around 87. So they 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 had it before I was old enough to play it, is the point. And so they very quickly got me hooked on that when I was probably too young. Like these days, you would say, uh, oh, no screen time for a two-year-old. But back then, they didn't know any better. And they were like, sure, stick them in front of the NES. It's the only thing that, that gets this toddler <laughs> to stop bogging us all the time. So I was really into the NES. I, I played, I actually recently unearthed a box of my old NES games from my parents parents place and found like my old copy of the first final fantasy and wow. uh when some sesame street game that i used to play and all sorts of other stuff terrible terrible games um i amidst the, the nes days um so that was my first console and then i also would play um pc games uh also with my parents because they were into that stuff and like my mom because of her job she was able to bring home free pc games so we would play together and stuff like that so was it so was it really both just, parents? Was it both of them that were that were gamers? Yeah, well they weren't I wouldn't call them gamers. It was more that they were both very into technology and yeah. so they were into the newest stuff and like they kept up with like the internet and computers and they were they were not your typical millennial parents who are just like like need help uh logging into their Hotmail accounts or whatever. <laughs> they were they were both internet savvy and computer savvy when I was growing up and so they liked playing stuff with me and like sharing that with me, which was cool. It was very like the formative thing and one of the the paths that took me into a career that is covering the video games industry, I think was was just growing up being immersed in in games and um, playing them all the time. But bringing home computer games is part of your job. I mean, that's pretty cool. But but actively going out and buying a Nintendo Entertainment System that's mm -hmm. for for when you don't even have a kid or you, or your your son's an infant that's some like next level cool parent stuff right there yeah it was pretty cool yeah i can't complain can't complain about uh about my parents too much uh, <laughs> they were cool when it came to games and they were very much uh, they didn't like 
spoil me or anything and like they weren't buying me every single game I wanted or anything but they were very supportive of the hobby as opposed to I know I have a lot of friends and even my wife um, wasn't allowed weren't allowed who weren't allowed consoles growing up and my parents were very much on the opposite end where they they believe very much and I share that belief in like all things in moderation which I think is actually a really good kind of tool in life yeah. and in parenting um, and it's something that I'm certainly gonna gonna use for my kids which is like um, we're not gonna to stop you from playing video games but like you can only play a couple hours a day or something like that like where it's more it's it's not letting you just eat yourself to death with candy play play video games all day until your eyes bleed but also not going the opposite approach and being like no consoles a lot here which i think is pretty cool i think that's like a good way to approach things in general just like moderation do you have a do you have a memory of of what the first game was? I know you mentioned the Sesame Street game. You mentioned the old copy of Final Fantasy One, but do you do you remember what what might have been like the first formative game memory you had? Yeah, it, it was definitely the first Final Fantasy, and I remember um, I would just play the crap out of it. But I can never get past. Have you played Have you played the original Final Fantasy? I never did. I've never been a big Final Fantasy guy myself. Okay, you're not not a not a JRPG nerd, but um, but yeah. So you get up to there's this part early in the game that people familiar with the game will know, and it's called the Marsh Cave, and it is essentially this like super difficult first dungeon of the game. And as a kid, I had no idea how to get past this <laughs> thing. And NES games were all super hard for various True. reasons, mostly because they were from the arcade lineage, where it was like we want games to be super hard, so you keep paying quarters. And NES games kind of took that design mentality and brought it to consoles. Um, with Final Fantasy that first dungeon was so friggin' hard that as a kid i'm four or five years old playing it i can never get past it um and so i would just kind of read through the walkthrough and the instruction manuals and all that stuff and just like imagine that i was getting further eventually down the road when i was older i would get get make more progress in the game but at first when i was four or five i was happy to just keep <laughs> playing replaying the first parts of the game over and over again which is so funny today like these days i'm like man i don't have time for any of that um i i don't have time for games that like to have no respect for my time that sort of thing but back then when you're a kid i mean when you're a kid you're just willing to just sure go through this monotony because you're just so amazed by the novelty of it all um and i think that's what the first final fantasy was like for me and yeah very formative well was was final fantasy one like a, a big like motivator to get you to learn how to read so that you could follow along with all the text it was yeah i was a pretty i was pretty quick to start reading and so that helped um but video games in general i think uh were pretty good at helping me read i definitely remember like i have a lot of vocabulary that i learned from like early jrpgs on the super nintendo like final fantasy games and and stuff like that definitely learned a lot of things from ted woolsey the infamous translator of a lot of square <laughs> squaresoft rpgs back in the day he taught me a lot of vocab i will i will say that Thank you, Ted. Uh, so, yeah, thanks, Ted. so let's fast forward. Like, so how do you end up doing this? At what point do you know that you want to write about video games and try to make video games a career in some way, shape, or form? Um, I never knew that. I still don't know that. I, <laughs> I, I part of me is like, yeah, maybe I'll be a, a novelist one day. Um, no, I, I, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. I was always into writing things. I would like write little fan fiction when I was growing up of of all these games I was playing, all the Final Fantasy games and stuff. And I always like since since. Uh, a very early age, I would just read voraciously and try to write all the time. Um, I didn't really discover journalism until I was in high school when I was on my school paper um, and then kind of carried that into college and did some did some other journalism stuff in college. And then what happened was um, after I graduated from college, I went to NYU. After I graduated, I was still in the New York area. <clears throat> moved back in with my parents for a bit and I was doing kind of freelancing, trying to figure out where my career was going to go. And I started doing freelancing for like local journalism outlets in the suburbs of New York. And I remember this is my apocryphal story, which is I remember I was uh, I was going to a local government meeting and covering it. And they were talking, it was like a zoning board meeting. Right. And they were talking about whether a fence should be allowed to be 25 feet or 30 feet. And they were arguing, like this board is arguing, should this should this fence be allowed to be here 25 feet, 30 feet? And it's all like these 67 year old people who just have nothing else to do but <laughs> argue over things. 
And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is the most boring thing in the world. Like, I do not want to be doing this. Like, I love reporting, but I need to be writing about something more interesting. Um, and then I happen to just kind of think, like, I wonder if it's feasible to write about video games for a living. And I had done, like, a little bit, like, played around with, like, freelancing for um, volunteer websites and uh, during college uh, and writing reviews for them. But that was the point where I was just like, let me try and see what happens here. And then yeah. I started freelancing and freelancing for a bunch of different websites and outlets and eventually got um, a gig writing for Wired uh, for Chris Kohler. Um, who then became my colleague at Kotaku afterwards, but he was kind of the person who gave me my big break in the video game uh, media world when he brought me aboard to Wired. And then from there, after a couple of years at Wired, wound up going to Kotaku and stayed at Kotaku for eight, eight years, um, eight years and some change, and then went to Bloomberg last year. And that's the, that's the sum of it. Well, so do you remember, you mentioned freelancing, you get, get your start on uh, some unpaid stuff, but do you remember the first game story that you got paid for? Because I, I always, I'll always remember mine, but I'm sort of curious if, if you, yours is in your head too. Yeah, well, what's yours? So uh, that I actually, I actually didn't get paid to do anything until I got to OXM. I did some free stuff. I don't know if you remember a website from the late 90s called uh, The Adrenaline Vault, A-Vault. Um, I did a couple reviews for them, you know, for free. That that website was famous. Like the, the reviews, they were like 4,000 words. It was just, there was no, <laughs> it was just like, let's just keep people on the website. And it was, it was super long, but I, uh, I reviewed. <laughs> Gotta get that engagement. Yeah, Warcraft 3 of all things, like this major, major game. I guess nobody on staff, uh, Pete Hines actually worked there way back in the day. <laughs> Strange <laughs> coincidence. But first one I ever got paid for was, uh, would have been my first review at OXM, which was for a, uh, post-apocalyptic BMX game. You can find it in, I guess, around the December or holiday 2002 issue. A game called Toxic Grind, which no one will remember. <laughs> Toxic Grind. Toxic wow. Grind. Not a bad game. I gave it a seven something, I think. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I wonder if the developers of that game, if like someone who worked on that game is watching this. And it's you like, never know. Oh, wow, it's a small Toxic industry. Toxic Grind really meant a lot to, <laughs> to Ryan. Well, how about you um, then? Yeah, so my answer is, so uh, my first paid games gig, I believe, was a review for Paste Magazine, which is actually where a lot of um, yeah, my, I remember that. a lot of colleagues in, in games media got their start because um, they were very good about like bringing on new writers and, and fresh voices and paying. Um, I believe it was for, um, I want to say it was, it was either a Dragon Age expansion or Cave Story. Um, one of those two, I think, um, cause I wrote those like around the same time. So I don't know which one was yeah. first, but like one of those <laughs> was, is my answer. So, uh, and then at some point along the way, you're, you're doing work, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of building your career. Uh, you end up writing your, you, you end up with a byline, uh, actually every now and again in the New York times. So do you pitch yourself for that? Do they come to you? Because either way, that's got to be an awesome, like, call your mom kind of moment, right? <laughs> yeah, my dad framed the first thing I wrote for the New York Times. That's that's, that's our local paper here in <laughs> here in the city. Um, yeah, I uh, I pitched. I think my first Times piece. Well, so actually, we were doing some pieces. I had some pieces in the Times that didn't have my byline on them because back in the day at Kotaku in like 2013 or something like that, we were doing. We had some syndication deal with them where Kotaku reviews would be published abridged in. The the times right and they had a whole game review section which they don't have anymore sadly um but that was a thing for a while although i don't think my name was on any of them because they removed the bylines for silly reasons i'm That's sure um i'm sure they had their reasons i'm sure they were like union reasons or something like that but it was frustrating um my first byline piece i believe was around 2017 because it was around the same time my first book came out and i wanted to write an op-ed that was tied to it and so i pitched it to them and got some bites and that's how that happened and then since then i've like kept in touch with a couple of editors there and just written for them every once in a while now i can't really because i'm writing for um bloomberg full-time and and we're more competitors than kotaku and the new york times would be so it wouldn't it wouldn't be as quite as kosher for me to write for the times these days but yeah the, it's that's always a super cool opportunity and it's always super cool to see mainstream outlets kind of embracing the video game industry that yeah. it hasn't it's it's been happening more and more 
Um, but that was that was always a very slow thing for some of these more widespread uh, mainstream publications to really say, hey, this $180 billion video game industry, maybe <laughs> we should cover that a little bit. Um, last year, actually, when the pandemic was first starting, the Times was interested in covering games because games were obviously exploding when people right. were stuck at home. Um, so they, they commissioned some articles, and I wrote a couple of pieces for them about Final Fantasy VII and about the pandemic in general and games. Um, so, yeah, it was cool, cool opportunities. So how do you end up being or becoming like the investigative reporter guy? Like, is that <laughs> is that an intentional thing where you just found like you just had a nose for it and a and a and a and an interest in that, or did it did it sort of accidentally evolve into that? Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I think it's just uh, that I'm kind of naturally a very persistent person, very curious, persistent person, and so when I ask questions i mean one of the cool the coolest thing about being a reporter is if you have a question you can try to find an answer to it and like help answer it for and one of the things that i kind of wanted to take advantage of as i uh spent more time at kotaku and and had gotten into it for a year or so was just like taking that opportunity to be like okay in addition to the daily grind of blogging and uh writing about whatever news du jour uh is is happening um i want to do longer form stuff and investigate stuff and trying to trying to like uh, pursue pieces that like really meant something to me that i would remember um like today i can sit here and uh if you show me kotaku headlines from 2012 that i had written i would have no idea that i'd written them like you could you could say to me jason you wrote this story about uh uh, the new kingdom hearts and i would be like no i didn't and you would show me and it would be my byline and i would be like oh my god what i don't remember that at all um but if you show me something that's like a longer form piece something i spent a lot more time writing then i would be like oh yeah that i i did i do remember that i i cared about that a lot um and i remember i started to um uh, I mean, as this was happening, I was also talking to more and more people who worked in the video game industry as part of the job. You wind up going to E3 and GDC and stuff like that and meeting people and networking. And and you, you hear a lot of stories um, and you hear a lot of problems. And uh, I think for for a reporter sometimes when you hear things you're like okay i i i want to know more about that i feel like this this should be exposed i feel like it it would help people if this was exposed um but really it's a curiosity thing I, one of my first kind of big major pieces that really had impact and kind of reached a really broad audience and and um, I guess it was was very helpful for my career because it really led to my first book was a piece that I wrote in uh, 2015 about the making of Destiny. And that piece started, that piece that had actually started a year earlier. It was wow. like a year in, 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 in the works. Um, not not the entire time. It spent months not being worked on while, while key things happened and I waited for key sources. But um, a year earlier, Destiny had come out and I, and I think a lot of people were like, what the hell happened here? Like, what is this game? This game is such a mess. It's like this hodgepodge of scenes and sequences that make no sense and characters popping in and out and dialogue that is just totally meaningless and trite. And it was really, it just left a lot of questions. And I felt like I want to answer those questions for people. And I was finally able to do that in a piece that I published at the end of 2015 that was like about how Destiny was made, the original Destiny was made, and how um, the it was all rewritten in the last year and uh, kind of patchwork together. And um, yeah, I mean, just basically the, the story of what happened. And that story, I think, really um, helped lead to lead me down the road of doing a lot of other stories that were similar. Um, a, because other developers reached out and wanted to talk. Um, B, because it gave me the kind of confidence um, in knowing, okay, I was able to tell this story that some people thought they would never get to hear right. um, unless like 10 years down the road, so, like Jason Jones talked to Ryan again and was like, <laughs> I'm going to come down from my throne and give one of my, my <laughs> every decade, decade interviews, interviews yeah. <laughs> to Ryan and tell the real story. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, the, just having the confidence of being able to know like, oh man, well, if I was able to tell that story, but there are a lot of stories that I could try to tell and reach out to people and try to get people to trust me enough to, to help them tell their story. Um, and then the other thing that happened after that is that um, I heard from my now agent, Charlie Olson at Inkwell Management, who said, 
hey, you should write a book that's like stories like this. Um, and I was like, hmm, that's that's a good idea. Do you think anyone would buy it? And that kind of sent me on the long road of publishing my first book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, which was this anthology of stories um, about how games are made. So that, um, that I think also really helped in terms of just like um, getting people to trust me to tell their stories and to be able to look at the articles and the the book and the stories that I've written and just kind of know that I think, I think that like, um, I don't think I'm good at a ton of things, but I do think I'm good at getting people to trust that I will handle their story in a way that, uh, is, is, uh, well, uh, that is, that is, Fair. that treats them with respect, treats the story yeah. with respect, treats the material with respect, protects them, um, kind of satisfies people that is, that is just not, I will not drop the ball. I will not publish something that is like a single source says this and um, is full of like half truths or whatever. Like in general, I think I, I have been able to convince people that I can handle their stories in in a way that is um, worthy. And that to me is the most valuable thing as a reporter. And I'm forever grateful to people who trust me, who, who give me that trust and who trust me to tell their stories. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a long-winded answer to your question. No, I love it. And, and, I'm, the, and I'm, the path. I'm curious. Yeah. Like when you start to kind of get into that and you start to find an interest in that and a nose for that, do you, is it tough to sell your editor in chief, whether it's Stephen Totillo or even potentially people higher up on the, on the ladder at Kotaku that, Hey, I want to spend again, not that you're spending every minute of every day for months on this stuff, but are those long form investigative things, the long term, I guess I should say, are those a tough sell at all when, you know, in this this media market we both live and work in where it's all about, you know, how many pieces can you turn around in a day and get, you know, get as much traffic as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been very lucky in my career in that I've never been told not to pursue those things. I think Stephen um, very early on uh, recognized that there was a lot of value to having Kotaku being known as this place that is like running these these deep dives and investigations. Uh, um, part of it is certainly that like, at least for a while, at, at a certain point, I was doing less and less of like the daily news grind stuff. But um, I was often for for a while, I was doing a lot of like daily posting and stuff like that. So um, and occasionally I would take off a day or two to work on a bigger story. But usually my reporting for bigger stories was kind of in the cracks of other blogging um, and other news reporting. Um, it also, I mean, it wasn't just like some of the work we were doing in Kotaku wasn't just long form pieces. We were also doing some shorter term and meteor, uh, some short and medium length stories that were either new yeah. scoops um, about people, about games, about companies, um, or pieces that were maybe like 1,200, 1,500 words that were kind of meatier than your average blog post, but not quite like the big deep dive that 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 everyone uh, everyone is hoping for about Anthem or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think at Kotaku, we were able to do a, a, a healthy balance and I was very fortunate in that I was never told like, don't, don't do this or don't do this. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky there and same with the Bloomberg where I can, they give me even more autonomy and time and I can just kind of do, pursue the stories that I'm interested in that I think are, are worth telling. Um, it is worth noting that from like a metric point of view, the big stories also bring in good numbers and True. like have a lot of impact. And to, even to, I don't know how much like managing upwards Steven was doing in the media, in the media ecosystem. And obviously Kotaku went through multiple owners. So we are, are, editorial uh, uh, bosses and, and mandates yeah. changed quite a bit over the years. But um, I do think, especially in the Nick Denton era, there was a lot of value placed on like writing stories that everyone was talking about, writing stories that people cared about that were linked on other websites that were aggregated and, and tweeted and trending on Twitter or whatever. And so I think that um, just brings a lot of value to a, a, a website and a brand, quote unquote. Um, in a way that like the daily blogging traffic numbers might not. And then those stories will big numbers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think that Gawker Media especially saw that with Stuffin's public publishing of the, um, their story about Manti Teo in 2013, where they revealed that this college football player's girlfriend didn't actually exist. 
um, and some of the other big impact stories that that the company did over the years, um, I think kind of reflected. And, and I think other media organizations are, are thinking similarly that like big high impact stories have a lot of value. Um, Absolutely. At least I hope so. I think it's it's uh, it's important to value things that go way beyond um, your kind of typical metrics, like your page views right. and your your whatever. Like, I think it's really important if if you're I don't know, a news outlet and you publish a story that's an investigation into a corrupt politician and that story leads to the politician resigning. Like all that is so much more important than any traffic numbers you could get that like hopefully uh, media outlets are recognizing the value of that stuff. So do you have a favorite story that you've broken in your career? Is there one that stands out where it's just sort of top of the list for you? Yeah, I mean, people ask me that sometimes, and I always say that my favorite stories are the dumbest, the dumb things that I wrote at Kotaku, like the silly, fun things, which people don't really don't don't really understand because I'm always like, yeah, sure, I, I enjoy publishing um, these big long form pieces, and I enjoy publishing impact things that maybe lead to changes at companies, and that is super rewarding and valuable for me, and hopefully helps people. Um, but I also just like writing really silly, dumb headlines and stories. And so like one of, uh, one of my favorite pieces that I've ever done, <laughs> this is so stupid, but one of my pieces, one of my favorite pieces I've ever done is just called review scores ranked. And then it's a list of 10, <laughs> 10 review scores and they're ranked in, in my order of however I chose to rank them. I think number one is seven. Um, maybe number 10 is two or something like that. <laughs> Go check it out. Review scores ranked. If you want the real Jason Schreier experience, <laughs> go check right. out. Check well, out. Well, I mean, it, it is the video game industry after all, right? Where it's an enthusiast mm -hmm. media space. We're not, you know, it, even even when you're, I mean, you're out there doing pretty serious work on on a pretty regular basis. But it is still, we're here. We're writing about fun and games at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that, uh, but but it's not just that. I also think that like satire can be a really useful tool. Another good, and one, another one of my favorite pieces, you're going to really like this one, is that in 2013, um, we were, I remember this vividly, we were at PAX and Bioshock Infinite was about to come out. Hey, maybe this will be a good segue to the book, but let All me right, tell perfect. the story first. Bioshock Infinite was about to come out. Um, and we had gotten a review copy. And then suddenly, it's like the Friday of PAX or somewhere like that, PAX East, and we see IGN publishes the exclusive review of Bioshock Infinite. Um, and it's it's like a great review. Yeah, um, I wrote it. And we're like, wait a minute. Oh, you wrote it. <laughs> I okay, wrote perfect. it, yeah. So, so perfect. So we, we were like, wait a minute, we can't talk about a review. Turns out IGN has the exclusive. And like everyone else is embargoed for Monday, and IGN has this review that they can post on Friday. So we were like, hmm, what can we do? Why don't we post a review of IGN's review? And so we <laughs> I don't published. remember that. Oh man, you gotta find it. <laughs> well, I will it's, now. It's, yeah, it's like it's not mean or anything. It's not taking right. shots at you. It's very silly. And like that was very intentional. We were like, we're not gonna like insult IGN for for doing this. Like it's totally their prerogative to do this thing. So we're just gonna do our review of IGN's review, and we're gonna say <laughs> we can't talk about Bioshock Infinite. So we're just gonna review IGN's review. And it was like like our our Kotaku review box that we used at the time. And it was like <laughs> like usually we would write time played or like length of the game. So we wrote like three thousand words or something like that. And then it was like like things we liked. And it was like well. The, the the page count was very good and like the the layout was was excellent and stuff like that it was it's extremely silly um and we had so much fun putting it together and doing this kind of like cheeky shot at the idea of exclusive reviews that yeah. was also just like like in good fun because it wasn't outwardly mean to anyone or anything like that and um yeah stuff like that is like some of my most memorable stuff because it's silly and it also proves a point and don't get me wrong like i said i'm still i'm very much into publishing the high impact stories and the stories that are really gonna turn turn heads and get people talking and and um hopefully expose something or another uh that that uh gets at a broader truth or gets at some something interesting and important but um yeah, I also like the dumb shit. I think my last story at Kotaku, or one of my last stories at Kotaku, was uh, 
Outer Worlds developer hires Outer Wilds writer or something like that. And that was also just extremely fun. I'm extremely yeah. glad that my two last stories of Kotaku were were that and then a story about how Rockstar has changed over the in like the 18 months since we published our investigation yeah. into like their crunch culture and and how they were at least outwardly, at least for now, trying to get better in, in various ways. And so that dichotomy of those two things is just is just my favorite. <laughs> so yeah, you know, that's, that's what I loved about Kotaku, being able to do both of those things. It's funny, like the that I think that was the last exclusive review IGN did. Because honestly, I mean, you remember you've been because around of long us, enough. because of Kotaku's uh, it review. It may I've very heard. well be, but but it just yeah, it just it was such a thing for particularly back in the magazine days, you know, where you wanted to be the the mm -hmm. only magazine. Like if you're at the newsstand, you're going, well, all right. Which magazine do I pick up? Oh, OXM's got the exclusive review of Halo 2. Well, I'm definitely yep. going to pick that up because I want to know about that game. But yeah, it's just, you know, the media landscape changed and it just became, you know, it just didn't feel right anymore. Like it just didn't make sense to, to you know, for for almost um, just your credibility in a sense. Like, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't want to, if you gave a game a good score, you didn't want it to be quite, you didn't want the, the validity of that to be questioned. So, but it's really fun. I'm I'm totally gonna look that up as soon as we're done recording. Yeah, you this. gotta find it. You gotta find <laughs> it after this. Uh, all right, the book. Yes, press reset, ruin and recovery in the video game industry. Uh, how would you say that this book differs from your first one? Yeah. So okay. So I wrote my first book. My first book was essentially me asking the question, "Why are video games so hard to make?" and answering that by looking at 10 different stories of games, games that were made, games that weren't made, games that were changed after launch, et cetera, et cetera, and just kind of telling those stories. Um, and then when I finished that, I, I had some other ideas. Um, for a while, I was writing, uh, oh, here's something that I haven't told anybody really. Um, I was writing my first like iteration of this book. I was like, I want to write a book about games as a service, the trend of games as a service in the video game industry. And just like examining that overall, maybe talking to like Fortnite. Um, I talked to the people, to Brendan Green, who made PUBG, sure. um, PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds. I talked to a bunch of people at Riot Games to talk about like League of Legends. And, and I was kind of analyzing games as a service. At a certain point, I was just like, this is not really working for me and just kind of scrapped that idea um, for a variety of reasons. But that was the original incarnation of this book. It's funny because this book has like, this book has been through such a saga that it almost feels like the development of a video game. And I'll get into <laughs> another thing that happened in a sec. But um, so at that point, I actually, the impetus for this was like, all right, well, the video game industry, if I'm looking at like the video game industry as a whole, one thing, one key, one thing I keep hearing from people is about brain drain and about how the industry has so much trouble keeping people around. And I wanted to know why that was. I wanted to know why it felt like this video game industry just can't make a sustainable career for its workers, make sustainable careers for its workers. And like, it's so rich. There's so much money in this industry, but workers are not seeing any of that. It's like going to the executives and workers are just getting laid off all the time. Their studios are shutting down all the time. So I decided I'm going to look at a bunch of case studies, stories of game studios shutting down and kind of trace the paths of people who were there. Um, and there were two kind of things that I knew um, well, there was one one thing I really wanted to do uh, a little bit differently, maybe a little bit better than I did in the first book, and that is follow the human stories as opposed to just the stories of a game. And I wanted, with the first book, I think a lot of people told me that their favorite chapter was um, the one about Stardew Valley and the the kind of solo developer Eric Barone and his journey in, through the trials and tribulations of making that game. And it's a great story, obviously, but I think one of the reasons people connected to that so much is because it was about one person as opposed to a lot of the other stories in that book, which are about a bunch of people making a game and you might not remember right. all of the names when you leave the book um, other than like Eric Barone or like Neil Druckmann or someone who you might have known coming into the book. But like you're not really leaving Blood, Sweat and Pixels with a lot of names in your head. And I wanted people to come into my next book and learn leave leave it thinking like knowing some people knowing a few people in the games industry and not necessarily the most famous people but like a few people who just have these these fascinating careers and paths and journeys um 
so I decided, okay, I'm going to pick a few studios and trace their what happened to them and, and talk to people who were there, figure out how they shut down, why they shut down, what happened there. And then, and this is a really important part, figure out what happened to people after that. And the reason it's called Ruin and Recovery in the video game industry is because the book is very much about both the ruin and the recovery. Yeah. It's about these studios shutting down for reasons, for all sorts of reasons. And then it's about the people who were involved. What happened to them? How were they impacted? What did they decide to go and do next? And then from a bigger picture standpoint, I wanted to look at why is the video game industry broken in such a way where people cannot seem to have sustainable careers without moving all over the world or losing their jobs every few years? Um, and how can that be fixed? Is there a way that can be fixed? And yeah, the results of that whole saga are, are in this book. And um, I think if you come into this book expecting it to be blood, sweat, and pixels, um, that's not what you're going to get. I think you'll you'll get the same like level of writing and reporting. The reporting is all based on interviews that I conducted, so it's all entirely firsthand reporting. But um, but the stories are very different, and I think better um, than my first book. I think a lot more human and um, a lot. I think easier to connect to and I think will resonate with a lot of people in, in a stronger way even than the Bloodstone and Pixel stories did. Well, we're going to get into the, some of the specific stories in a second, but it's funny just piggybacking off of what you just said. I'll be totally honest with you, and I, and I don't mean this <laughs> disrespectfully at all, but my big takeaway from the book is that I don't think I ever want to work in video game development because the mm. stories that are told here are uh, they're heart wrenching. They're they're uh, they're just they're difficult. I mean, you you know, you just hit on some of the high level things, but it, when you when you come away from this book and you finish writing it, is that your takeaway too? What's what do you take away from this book, and and what are you hoping that uh, that readers are going to take away from it? That was my takeaway like 10 years ago when I started reporting <laughs> on this industry. It's it's really not an industry that treats people no. well. Um, so when I wrote Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, I would say like anecdotally about 50% of responses that I get are like, oh my God, now I want to work in games. And 50% are like, oh my God, after reading this, I would never work in games. <laughs> I knew when I published Press Reset that that number <laughs> would look a lot different. I think... <laughs> Most of the people who read this will say, wow, I would never wa want to work in the video game industry. And that's for very good reason. I mean, I think that this book, I actually just wrote the, the copy of the book you saw is an early copy and doesn't have the, the end like acknowledgments section. At the end of the acknowledgments section, I wrote, I was writing, I wrote a little message about my daughter and I was like, I hope, who's 18 months old, she's way too small to read this book. And I wrote, I hope that by the time you are old enough to read this book, it is less of like a chronicle of how things are and more a chronicle of how things used to be. Yeah. Because that is very much my hope here is that, um, A, I hope, like first and foremost, I hope people who read this are entertained and informed and come away with it from the book feeling like they learned something and enjoyed the read and just came away from it feeling like they know more. That's that's goal number one. But kind of a side, a sub goal to that, maybe a goal number two, maybe side a goal quest, one if you B. will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that I hope that that this leads to some change because this is an industry that desperately needs to change. Um, it's funny when I when I sent this out, I got some kind of early feedback, beta testing, if you will. The the book industry actually calls it beta readers. Um, mm -hmm. I sent it out to some beta readers from feedback, and some of them were colleagues, friends, and then some of them were game developers. And the game developers were all just like, "Oh my god, this was miserable, to, miserable to read. Like, is this really the industry we work in? God." Um, and my hope is that like more and more people will read this and look around and be like, "Wow, this we can't keep letting this happen." Um, I think there's kind of one of the points that I wanted to make, and I'll be repeating this several times, I'm sure, is that I think that people kind of have associated my work, especially in recent years, with crunch culture and the overwork that is so ubiquitous in the video game industry. And while I think that's a problem, don't get me wrong, and it's something that I'm plan to keep writing about it and have written about. Um, I think the thing that really drives people away from games is the volatility. And that is really what this book is about. Volatility in the video game industry. The fact that like to have a career in games, you might have to move cities every three years, change jobs every two years. Like it's just not sustainable. And it's 
when we see things like even just a couple of weeks ago, Activision Blizzard like laying hundreds of people off while uh, giving its CEO more millions of dollars. It is just like, how can this continue? And I really hope that this is a call to action and that this book is just like, like fundamental, like ultimately one of those one uh, one of the much needed steps on the road. Even if it just plays a small part, like I don't yeah. expect this book to change the whole video game industry or anything like that. But if even one executive reads this book and is like, "Wow, we have to do things differently here," then I will be very happy and and gratified. And um, yeah, hopefully, so we'll see what happens. The book covers, like you mentioned, it's there's big studios, small studios in this. There's uh, Kurt Schilling's thirty eight studios. There's their sister studio, Big Huge Games. Mythic mm -hmm. is in here. 2K Marin, you mentioned Irrational with Bioshock, uh, among mm -hmm. others. Do you have a favorite that that you, when you started digging in, like that that just really uh, captured your attention the most or or maybe surprised you the most of, of where that story took you? Um, I don't have a favorite because they were all pretty, um, they all took me in unexpected directions, actually. Like, believe it or not, like every single story in this book surprised me in some way or another. Um, even the ones that I thought I knew, uh, like Irrational, took me into some directions that I didn't think it was going to. Um, and just hearing about some of the people's stories after what happened there. Um, the story actually that I that I first knew that I was going to put in this book no matter what was 38 Studios because I was like that is such a spectacular implosion um, and that yeah. story is so remarkable and also I knew I didn't know the whole story before I started writing the book but I knew that like um, obviously 38 had this game Kingdoms of Amalur um, that was actually just re-released uh, yeah, uh, on now. consoles yeah um, I just I was just playing it on my switch but um, people associate that with 38 Studios and say like, oh, at least Kurt Schilling's studio made this game. But most people don't realize that it was actually made by a totally different studio that 38 Studios just happened to buy that was down in Maryland. And the story of what happened to them, I think, is going to be the most shocking to people, like because most people don't know what happened to them. And I'll kind of leave the details for people to discover in the book. Yeah. But like the fact, the the way that in which Big Huge Games was kind of saved from death and then put to death in a very short period of time is just remarkable and wild and yeah it's 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 a pretty pretty insane story but really i mean like like things i learned about mythic were fascinating i didn't know a lot about that studio when i started writing that story and the, the enter the gungeon folks who are really interesting um 2k marin just a lot of interesting details about that and yeah I, uh following more inspector's story at the beginning of the book was also really fascinating to me and and hearing about his uh his his screaming matches towards the end of his studio um was another fascinating thing so yeah I, I i can't pick a favorite they're all my all my babies all of these stories <laughs> well you mentioned uh you mentioned mythic uh, i mean ea as you well know deservedly or not has one of the industry's worst reputations among gamers i mean do you get the sense that, that the developers that you've spoken to for the book over the years feel as negatively about ea as as gamers seem to because like you, you know the mythic story which again, I'm not going to give away the whole thing, but you know they closed down Mythic. But you mentioned in the book that the developers you spoke to, you know they they were you know they didn't really blame it on EA. So I'm sort of curious, just with them specifically and talking to developers, how uh, the sense that you get of how developers feel about EA. Yeah, EA is actually known within the video game industry as a, as a company that treats its workers pretty well, um, all things considered. And yes, the Mythic shutdown was handled, I think, pretty humanely. Um, but it's still a company where the CEO is making $30 million a year and <laughs> clocking in nine to five every day. So it's not, I mean, ultimately, we're talking about like a capitalistic system that is just damaging and leeching and, and um, really harmful to people. But yeah, that said, I mean, EA... EA is definitely the company that like has the most disproportionate like internet anger um, to how it actually treats people. And I think a lot has changed for EA over the years, um, but they're still like a corporation. They're still going to be laying people off. They're still going to be just kind of moving numbers around and prioritizing um, 
cost cutting and uh, uh, risk risk aversion over um, over like people's creativity and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, you see their games output, like their games output is what it is, and um, people can judge the pros and cons of like getting Madden and Battlefield every year. But um, but like this is not this is not a company that is going off and saying here game developers go and be creative for the next few years. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, like any like any of these big companies it has many of its pros and cons but um but there aren't a ton of people who are like like man ea is a sweatshop these days like i i don't get that sense although it's going to depend what which studio you're at within ea since ea is such a big publisher and right and culture like different companies within ea have their own cultures um but but i do think as a kind of in a better sense, yes, CA has has tried to do the right thing by by people. The problem is that maybe it hasn't tried enough. It hasn't. It, it's tried to the point where like they'll give decent severance packages to people they lay off, but not to the yeah. point where they'll cut the CEO's salary by twenty million dollars <laughs> in order to keep Visceral Games around or something right. like that. Right. So I know we're recording this before the book's officially out for total public consumption, but. Have you heard yet from anybody who's not portrayed or who doesn't come across well in the book? Because there are definitely a few of those people. Um, I also, on that note, uh, I kind of thought it was a bit telling that some of the people who don't look very good in this book have a little footnote next to their name at the bottom of the page uh, that you note that you contacted them for comment in the book, but they chose not to comment. Yes. Um, no, I haven't. Um, I don't know if I'll hear from them. I doubt it. Um, <laughs> I think I know who you're specifically <laughs> talking about there. Um, I actually uh, had tr I tried really hard to get Kurt Schilling on the record, and he had actually agreed to talk to me, but yeah. then just kind of stopped responding, unfortunately. Um, basically ghosted me for a while and was not able to get in touch with him, unfortunately, because I find him super complicated and interesting as a character, um, since he's this guy who is like a maniac on the internet who's like getting fired right. for f posting transphobic memes and racism and stuff like that. But at the same time, he's a guy who was... I think beloved by a lot of people who felt like he was their a great leader for them and there was something really fascinating about that story and about him as a character and i would have loved to hear his take but um unfortunately that did not work out and yeah i mean i'm looking forward to seeing how people react to the book um i will say that there's definitely uh <laughs> i mean uh, this book like like all, like many books, had to go through legal review, and there were a couple of things that our lawyers here of my publisher asked me to take out um, regarding a certain person uh, oh. who you were probably thinking of, <laughs> and uh, I guess I'll just leave it at that. What, what you're seeing is the lawyer sanitized version, right? Well, inevitably, right? It's uh, you, your mm. pub your publisher doesn't want to get sued, so they do not. They uh, do well, not. And I think that well, lawyers are are. They they don't want to take any risks, even if something can be backed up um, pretty well. But they're not they're not quite. I think book lawyers are not quite on the same level as like. Um, well, I guess it depends. I shouldn't generalize, but yeah, my my lawyer was a little bit uh, on the risk averse side. On uh, sort of on that note, I'm curious: Are you just from not just the book, but over the years, are you persona non grata to any major developers or publishers out there because of <laughs> of previous reports you've done? Because you know, I could certainly understand that based on a lot of the things I've I've read from you, but I'm kind of curious of your perspective on that. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I've written a lot about a lot of different companies um, and a lot of things that made that it went into that talked about people's workplaces and I think exposed some things that I didn't want to expose. But the only company that has like really blacklisted me to the point where they've never responded to me in eight years is Bethesda and your boy Pete Hines, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and what's funny about that is that it was in response to uh, me reporting, well, it was a few different things on the same year basically reporting on the development of the new doom and how that was going through development hell back in 2013 um yep. then respond then reporting on the new prey and how pedines lied to the press and said arcane isn't doing prey and then we said actually arcane is doing prey um and then reporting on fallout 4 and how it existed and was set in boston um and since that like 
Bethesda's only company that is just like such a like their PR team is so run by babies that they just would never talk to me again after that or could talk they just completely blacklisted it after that um so to this day I, I think that like a lot of PR people uh, don't enjoy the things I publish which makes sense I mean that's sure. gonna happen it's not part but, of their plan right 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 but they are still like willing to talk to me um because they recognize truly and fairly that talking to me is better than not talking to me and at least trying to provide their own context is going to help in the long run um so like even like i don't know cd project or rockstar or ea or sony or like all these companies that i've written negatively negative things about or exp exposés about are still willing to talk to me even if they're not like lining up to invite me to their events <laughs> right. like that right bethesda to this day is the only company that just like will never talk to me so and so that has that has followed you from that's not just a kotaku thing that's a that's a kotaku and and trier thing well, I don't know. I mean, at Bloomberg, it's it's different. And if we needed to reach out to Bethesda, I would have one of yeah. our other 2,000 reporters reach out to right. them at this point, just because it's not worth me even trying. But um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it's personal <laughs> with um, the people who run Bethesda's PR. I don't know if Microsoft buying them is going to yeah, change Yeah, I was just going to ask. I like, doubt it. Maybe, maybe there's a hatchet that can be buried there. Who knows? But <laughs> I doubt it. But the yeah. thing is, well, so the, the, they can, they know at this point that like they don't have to deal with me if they want to do Bloomberg stuff. Like there, right. there are a bazillion other people here for them to talk to and work with. So, um, so yeah, they they they. As far as I know, I am still blacklisted. I have not emailed Pete Hines recently to check if he'll <laughs> respond to me. But as far as I know. So, uh, all right, let's shift gears here. You, you've been uh, beating the unionization drum for many years, and that's certainly a, a big part of the book as well. I mean, you clearly believe very strongly in it, uh, though even though you're not a game developer yourself, this is your observation uh, to you know of what you see in the industry of something that that could fix it. I mean, um, you know, to your credit as well, uh, you you don't sort of just hammer that in the book. You do present developer multiple developer perspectives on you know both sides of unionization in the book what do you think in your opinion is it going to take for real for the game industry to unionize is it going to be like a major studio leading the charge like a rockstar or a bungee or something like that um it could be i mean what we're seeing at amazon in the tech industry is kind of is really interesting and it, we'll see how that vote goes in alabama and if that kind of leads to some to dominoes tipping over in in the tech world and if that also leads to dominoes tipping in the, in the video game world um i think that it's a super complicated subject so first of all to answer to to address how it's handled in the book the book actually it doesn't talk about unionization until the final chapter right. which is about which is like very deliberately exploring solutions to all the problems that the all the previous chapters are presenting um so it's very much like uh eight chapters telling stories talking about what's going on in this industry and then a final chapter that is like hey let's look at a bunch of different ways to to solve this yeah. and i do think unionization is and kind of has to be one of those ways because it's the only way for workers to get a seat at the table and one of the things that i found is whenever you talk to someone who is anti-union for whatever reason um they never really they might have their own reasons and their points for not liking the idea of unions but when you ask them okay then how do you solve these problems that the video game industry faces they never really have an answer um and sometimes that's because they're comfortable and so they don't really see these problems right. as problems um and that's a problem that itself is a problem that's like a thing that people that's one of the obstacles that people are gonna have to overcome is that is getting the more comfortable people to kind of accept that like everyone needs to be elevated not just the people who are making uh, uh good salaries and have stable positions or, or executives or whatever um so yeah, I mean, to the larger point about what it will take, I think that like it could be a smaller game studio doing it. It could be one big game studio doing it. It could be like a studio that is known for um, having specific issues that unionizes to try to combat those issues, like a Riot Games yeah. um, or a Naughty Dog or a Blizzard or something like that. 
Um, but from a logistical and practical perspective, it's really tough. A lot of these um, companies are anti-union for obvious reasons. They think it'll cost them a lot of money if, if workers unionize. They don't want to have to deal with, with unions and, and collective bargaining agreements and workers getting a seat at the table. Um, so there are a lot, a lot of obstacles. There's also very much a, a kind of libertarian, fuck you, got mine attitude among uh, certain game developers, among a lot of people who come to this from this perspective of like, hey, I'm really good at my job and I'm doing well for it. So why why do I need to help everybody else? Um, which I mean, I, I understand, but I think uh, at a certain point, you just have to look around and say like, man, if, if the people who are uh, lower than me, who are around me, just like are suffering this much, maybe we need to find a way to elevate them too. And, and maybe some of these systemic issues can only really be battled with systemic action. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do think it's inevitable. I think it's going to happen. I just think that like the only questions are when and where and in what form and how's it going to start and what's it going to look like. But um, it's hard to imagine that not happening. Uh, given the climate of the video game industry and the fact that so much money in the video game industry is like going straight up to the top and yeah. not trickling down at all is just one of those things that should be like a giant incentive for everybody to get together and say, hey, what are we going to do about this? Well, I mean, I I appreciate that you are optimistic that it's inevitable, but but let's look at it. What What do you see as the worst case scenario for the industry if it does not change its ways? <laughs> Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I don't think video games are going away or anything, but like, in a lot of ways, we are in the worst case scenario already because there are so many people who have just been burnt out and like, who knows how much talent has been lost, how much brain drain there's been um, at some of these companies. Um, so I, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people who work in the video game industry and just hear a lot of anecdotes and hear a lot of perspectives on various studios and stories and stuff. And one of the things that I hear pretty constantly is how hard it is to find senior developers. And alongside that, one of the things that I also hear is how frequent it is for a game company to make the same mistake over and over again. And I think one of the reasons for that, the main reason for that is brain drain and yeah. people just burning out. And that's not something that is really measured or can really be like codified and, and, and printed in an article somewhere. There isn't any statistic for like X percent of people left the video game industry last year or anything like that. Um, so it's tough to, to point at something and be like, whoa, look at this problem here. Instead, you just kind of have to look around anecdotally and try to figure out why, why everybody at this game studio is in their 20s and all the people who started in the 90s are gone. Um, but, um, but, but look, here's a perfect example of something like that, which is at, a game, at many game companies, there's a tendency to um, look at chapter two of this book is about Bioshock Infinite. And it's about very much this, the, the philosophy that Irrational had, which was like, we'll spend a few years messing around and changing everything and and like seeing what we can come up with and in fantasy land and not crunching and just coming in and and being in fun idea land for a while yeah. um and then suddenly like the rubber hits the road and you're like oh man we have two years left and we have to ship a game and we don't have anything and you go into intense crunch mode for the next two years and then when the game ships you're like man we really got to do better next time but you know what let's take it easy for now <laughs> And then a bunch of people who went through that leave, a bunch of new people come in and everyone else is like, we're not crunching, we're in fantasy land for the next three <laughs> years and let's hang out for a while. And then three years from then, everyone's like, wait a minute, what just happened here? We got to ship a game. And the cycle continues on and on and on. And I think that like, I bet there are AAA game developers listening to this right now and just like nodding their heads furiously <laughs> and going, oh my God, like, why is this still happening? And it's just like, there's a belief, I think, um, among the video game industry that like, this is how you make games. Like you, you have to just iterate, you have to fuck around for a while until, until you figure out what the game is. And maybe to some extent that's true, but like, there are so many of these patterns we keep seeing repeat themselves over and over again. And uh, <laughs> it's hard to say that that's sustainable. Like really, I, to answer your original question, I think we are kind of in the worst case scenario and that's mm. continuing. And um, from a player's perspective, we're, we're seeing a lot of that. You're seeing games that are super buggy and games right. that are shipping unfinished and games that are having 
look at cyberpunk sure. a lot of the issues i'm talking about can definitely be applied to cyberpunk a lot of the issues that i explore in this book can definitely be applied to cyberpunk um and so like from a game quality perspective it's not good from a human perspective it's really not good um and i just don't see how things can get better without some sort of widespread systemic change and in, in how games are made and how game companies operate well, I feel like if there's one company that comes out of your book looking pretty good, <clears throat> pardon me, it's Devolver. Um, are there what are some other examples that you've encountered over the years of of studios that are treating their employees well? Like, give are there are there a few good examples uh, out there of like, no, this this is a good model for for what it can be. Yeah, I don't know. I hate to say things like that. Well, so Devolver, to give you a little more context, Devolver is a publisher that um, that the Enter the Gungeon people went to right. after leaving Mythic, and they got a, a, a pretty good deal there. Devolver, I think, is, is I don't know how they treat their internal people, um, but as a publisher, they're pretty well respected and, and appreciated by developers who work with them, um, which is a little bit different than them being employers. True. They're, they're kind True. of contracting the developers. But um I hate giving, I hate answering that question because <laughs> sometimes I'll give an answer and then based on like what I've heard from a few people and then I'll hear from someone else who's like, actually this place sucked for various reasons. So it's tough to really answer that question, especially because so many of these cultures are so humongous that it's like, it, yeah. it depends. Like like some people, a bunch of people at Studio X might've had an amazing experience there, but because they were on the QA team and well, not the QA team, nobody in QA is an amazing experience. Those people were on the design team and they had a great boss, whereas, these people on the art team had a terrible boss who just abused them constantly and would scream in meetings and was asking them all to work on Saturdays no matter what and so on and so on. And um, so it, it can be tough to like really assess a company without me actually going in there and talking to as many people as possible to figure out like what's what. Um, so yeah, it's tough to prove a negative. It's impossible to prove that a company isn't mistreating people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I can't answer that question, unfortunately, as much as I would like to. Well, how um, about, um, let me find this, this isn't a story from the book, but you had previously, one of your big reports uh, in the last couple of years was about Bioware and, and the uh, toxic work culture there in the lead up to Anthem's release. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was pretty damning for, for the, for management there. I mean, have, have you gotten, have you been able to sort of keep in touch with people and, and follow up, uh, on that at all? And maybe have you gotten any sense from any sources that, that things are any better at Bioware? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's not, uh, this is not something that I've spent a bunch of time looking into just yet. Um, I find that it's tough to, um, really know until you're towards the end of a game's life cycle how well they're treating its people. And um, that's one of the reasons I was hesitant actually to talk about, to really dive into Rockstar as the, the one of the last Kotaku stories I mentioned because their yeah. game was still far away and is still far away. And and so it was hard to know like what's, what's the last year of development going to look like. And I feel kind of similarly with the Bioware stuff, um, especially because their game is still like their new dragon, the next Dragon Age is still like up in the air in so many ways. And still, they're still trying to answer so many questions that um, I think it's tough to be like, well, are things as stressful now as they were on Anthem? Because they might still be early on. But I don't know. I mean, I tend to, I, I don't tend to like to um, write too much about studios. There are exceptions. I don't want to give like general rules because I will write about games that are currently in development. Um, and I plan to um, about some games, but um, in the near future. But I, but I do think that like there's, there's some there's some merit to waiting until a game is out and has been through everything um before talking about it um because you you don't really have the full picture until then um just as an example when i published that anthem article i actually got a bunch of messages from people from other game developers who are like hey you could plug in the my game's name for anthem in this story and it would be the exact same story <sighs> two of those games included the last of us 2 and cyberpunk um and uh, I think that that writing about cyberpunk as an example was not super. I, I don't think it would have done had a lot of value to write about cyberpunk and the culture behind that game and the making of that game um, in 2019 when it was a year and a half from being right. released. I don't. I don't think. 
I mean, I made a judgment call there and I just didn't think there, I, I, I put it all aside until after the game came out before I would really dive into it a little bit more. Um, but yeah, in general, I think, and again, I hate giving these broad descriptions because people will find games that I've written about where they were in development when I published X story about them <laughs> or whatever. Um, but but as a general, general rule, not to be applied in every single case, but as a general rule, I think that that I find it more useful and more um, valuable for people to just wait until the game comes out and, and we can tell the whole story from beginning to end. Well, you mentioned CD Projekt Red and Cyberpunk, and that's... I mean that story is is incredible of of what we even know publicly. I mean it I, to me it seems like it's it might be worse than the worst case scenario for for <laughs> as far as their how cyberpunk has been received and how it's done and um do you feel like based on you know just kind of your sense of of it and reporting on the industry over the years is is the law is the entire long-term plan for cyberpunk out the window like is the reputation of of that studio and of of that franchise salvageable yeah it's definitely salvageable and i i think we all we all tend to have short-term memories and like yeah. well i think in a few months we're not going to forget about this but like if cd project Red comes out with this amazing expansion that is like focused and solves some of the problems that cyberpunk had and if they um uh release it for free and like find some other and publish some more stuff that is like dear gamers we love you i think they can they can win back the trust of fans hopefully fans and gamers out there hopefully everybody takes a lesson from this which is not to trust in put any trust in brands and to focus more on people but what can you do it's it's always going to be the case in this industry where when 400 people make a game it's hard to 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 know exactly who's who it's easier to remember like oh cd project red i love them but um, at least at least people can avoid pre-ordering games as opposed to books, which you should pre-order. You should definitely pre-order <laughs> press reset because um, it's finished. Look, it's in the background. It's done. It's not buggy. I promise. Right, it's not going right. to be. It's not going to be full of issues. But um, but yeah, I, I I do think they can they can salvage this. Um, I, obviously it sucks and it sucks for a lot of the people there. And um, I'm I think they're losing people who don't want to have to crunch and don't like the culture there and aren't happy there for whatever reason. But that plays into what I was talking about earlier. That's an overall systemic problem, not just the CD project people, right. uh, not just the CD project pro problem. But um, but yeah, I do think that it can be salvaged. It might just take a while and uh, hopefully it teaches a lot of lessons to everybody and um, leads to management actually listening when developers say, hey, this is not enough time to finish this game. Uh, and yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully good things come of it. Um, but yeah, certainly a sucky situation for a lot of people. Well, uh, I really enjoyed the book, Jason. It's Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. If you've ever wanted to know some behind the scenes, again, as Jason says, the human stories. I mean, that's that's I I that resonates with me a lot because that's my goal with this show is to try and get to those human stories behind some of these developers. And, and the book does a great job of that with all those studios that we talked about. Uh, it is out May. What is the date, Jason? May 11th. May 11th. Um, and yeah, people who pre-order it can actually get, we're doing a whole pre-order bonus. It's very video game industry. <laughs> um, people who pre-order the book can get uh, the first chapter and the prologue uh, sent to them early. They can read it early. Um, a readable so demo, free readable go demo. And it. Yeah, you get a demo. Go <laughs> pre-order the book and you go to the, the portal website, the Grand Central publishing website for the book and you should be able to fill out a form and you'll get the first chapter. So Fantastic. Cool. Jason Schreier, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure. All right. For more from the best, brightest, most interesting minds across the entire games industry, media development, or otherwise, stay tuned every month for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered.